3: The history of war is the history of people, great people, forged in conflict that turned some to gold and others to ashes. The Republican Civil War can best be understood through the stories they tell and the private letters they send to
4: loved ones along the way. My dearest Melania, your faithful correspondence as I braved the front of the meme war has stiffened my resolve to defeat the rebel forces. I must say this DeSantis opposition is so very disloyal. He was dead as a dog, begging me to endorse him. He was crying. Many people don't know that because I made it up. But he was crying. And now he's governor because of your favorite president. In case you didn't know, it's me. Donald John Trump talking about myself in the third person, which is a totally normal thing to do. And now this, Ron DeSanctimonious. I call him DeSanctimonious because it just rolls off the tongue and is so easy to spell. He is very weak in defending me to the fake news media. He even referenced that horse face porn star in his statement. All I did was call him a pedophile, a pedophile globalist rhino. And wouldn't you know, He turned on Trump. He even blames me for Fauci, which is very wrong and unfair because I was only the president and they're both Italians, but the polls are looking good. We will defeat Ronnie D and roll him back to Florida like a meatball down a plate of spaghetti. DeSantis looks skinny. Please send me pudding cups to taunt him. Yours truly, Donald.
2: Dearest Casey, I never expected war to be a drag like this. Just a month ago, they were cheering for me up and down K Street, but now my poll numbers are falling faster than an iguana in winter. And the truth is, I'm stressed, stressed because I've got to be a nerd and finish the legislative session in Florida, while Donald Trump flies his jet, shakes hands, and kisses babies. The fake news loves that shit when the Donald does it. They say I lack the human touch. I tried to take one of those Myers-Briggs personality tests online, and my computer started smoking. Who would have thought that not everything is as easy as an interview on Fox News or putting Disney in their place? Pray for me, Casey. These Iowa winters are cold, but at least they don't have red tide.
4: Your loving husband,
2: Ron. The 2024 Republican presidential primary field is taking shape. The battle lines are becoming clearer, and so is the field of candidates. Is the odds on favorites if you look at the polling
1: still Trump versus Biden?
5: That seems to be it, but it's just way too early to tell. I'm more angry
0: now, and I'm more committed now than I ever was. Big challenge for these candidates is going to be how do they navigate Donald Trump, and and how do they navigate Ron DeSantis?
4: You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We Welcome.
0: Welcome to a special edition of the Ruthless Variety program. That was something.
2: Yeah, a little program variety.
5: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing how similar these AI things can be to the voices of the people. It's, it's amazing.
2: Why don't you explain to the folks what we heard there? Well, you know, obviously, a disclaimer up front that that was not, in fact, <laughs> Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, but... You can use these AI tools to generate their voice pretty pretty easily, and so you know we kind of went with like a Ken Burns style Civil War documentary. I like in- this introduction.
0: A lot. I like I, we sh- we need to do this on like maybe even a weekly basis where we summarize the week. Yeah, this I, way I like it. It's it's like. Just a little bit of pageantry, yeah. You know, a
3: little something for the people. <laughs> a little bit of variety, if you will. Get Wait,
2: variety in that. the program, and nobody exits unscathed. <laughs> no, on the variety program.
0: No, you're all going to get a little bit of fun making.
2: Yeah, uh, I, I hope they they can appreciate it because you know what? If you're going to survive this Republican primary, you better get a thick skin.
0: Oh yeah,
5: and a good sense of humor, right? Because there's going to be just like it's going to be Royal Rumble yeah. essentially. Like this is going to be the biggest. You know, no holds barred match we've probably ever seen in a Republican primary. And at the end of the day, it's it's fun.
4: Yeah. It's fun,
5: fun. folks.
0: That's <laughs> the thing that everybody needs to understand. Like, everybody gets so angry about politics. This is going to be the most fun you've ever had. Yeah. Right. It's the the commentary, the back and forth. We talked about this yesterday. But honestly, it is.
5: And, and that's the difference between the right and the left at this point is we're allowed to have fun. We're allowed to make jokes. We
0: can still make jokes. We can still make jokes for a while anyway. Uh, a special uh, Friday program where we have an interview, Michael.
2: Yeah, we do. Uh, Senator Lankford, and I think we referenced it in the last show, but he has this great exchange with Treasury Secretary Yellen uh, last week uh, about the SBV uh, you know, situation with the bank we're on and these sort of other banks that were impacted. And, you know, I mean, it, he illuminates, I think, a huge issue in this with regard to community banks and small banks uh, that I think is really important. Touches on some other stuff too.
0: No, that's great. And he's a will of a guy. Yeah. Uh, really first class human being. Um, we have an embudsman imbud- report.
5: I love this. So shout out McDaniel for finding this. Um, you you want to read this, Ashbrook? Yeah,
0: hey, you self correction?
5: Okay, fine.
0: You're making, you're rubbing his nose is, in it. Wow.
5: On the Thursday episode of the Variety Program, John Ashbrook erroneously related an anecdote involving the Crazy Ivan strategy employed by Captain Marco. Alexandrovich Ramius in the 1990 submarine spy uh, thriller film The Hunt for Red October. Mr. Ashbrook insinuated that a crazy Ivan was the maneuver taken by Captain Ramius to move into a torpedo fired by the Soviet submarine Kunalavov before the torpedo was able to arm. Mr. Ashbrook was mistaken. Oh no. Yeah. The crazy Ivan was a maneuver taken by Russian submarines in the film, and also in real life, apparently, of taking rapid and unexpected course corrections in an attempt to detect if they were being tracked the program regrets the error
3: <laughs> we don't regret anything we never yeah, We well, <laughs> don't mean, regret anything it's, it's a good movie it's a it's a fun term you know what I, well, I, you made I your feel, point fealty to russian submarine moves <laughs> is not exactly the yeah. top of my list but i got to
2: you know be what? honest i got to be honest they should have had you on there as a consultant because your version of events would
0: have made it even better much better a crazy Ivan hitting the submarine or hitting the torpedo first makes more sense yeah okay uh we're moving on fellas something really significant happened yesterday in the house Mm -hmm. you can't say that every day but it really it, it did um they had these tiktok hearings do you guys all follow this
5: yeah yes it was it was amazing
0: so, they're actually uh, the reason we're bringing this up. You've heard us talking about TikTok, you know, from time to time over the last year and like our how incredulous we are that nobody's actually thought to ban this outfit. Yeah. Uh, because it's so popular with kids, right? Right. Well, they they, they put together a hearing on this where they, they hauled down the brass from TikTok mm-hmm. to ask questions. It did not go well for TikTok, did it, Smug?
5: No. Um, I think this is also just a huge credit to the House Republicans, huge credit to the voters who put them there, got the House majority because this is what happens. The the, the House Republicans essentially made this a dunking contest right. on, on, on TikTok who had to sit there. And t- to me, I think the most alarming part of it was uh, they asked very specific questions of, of this TikTok guy being like, OK, let's talk about the Uyghur genocide four times. He doesn't he, – he denies any existence. I mean it takes four times to deny the existence of that. He doesn't refute any allegations of the spying that's been going on. The only defense that I really saw for for TikTok was coming from a Washington Post reporter. Yeah. Uh, their tech writer, uh, Drew Harwell, I believe is his name, who – himself was putting out misinformation he said he had this tweet that said tiktok might downplay its ownership by a china-based company because members of congress keep saying it's a secret chinese spying machine owned by the chinese Communist party with zero evidence and i was very happy to apply to them there's multiple investigations that are currently happening department of justice fbi into the spying and tiktok themselves at the end of last year admitted to spying (laughs) on journalists (laughs) so you think a journal of all people would know that, yes, they've not only engaged in spying, but have admitted to some of it, God right. knows what we don't even know about.
0: Right. Well, even, he, even the, the CEO of this outfit was asked about whether they spy on American citizens, and he said, uh, I don't think spying is the right way to describe
5: it. Which is incredible. <laughs> I mean, what? And, and on our previous episode, we had brought up the point of, like, there are state and federal government websites which found TikTok had embedded tracking code on them.
2: Right. Yeah, because there's basically two ma- major issues at stake here. Number one is like content, right? Yeah. And I mean, Smug, you've talked about it a lot that, you know, the, the Chinese version of TikTok, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, take this quiz game or like, see like this great, you know, like uh, young young boys forth. Yeah, this young boy scout walking an old lady across the street. Isn't that great? It's just and over here,
5: patriotic it's, stuff.
2: It's like, how are you depressed today? Yeah. And like, have you thought about killing yourself? Like that that is the content that kids get on TikTok and, and, in the and United and States. Again,
5: to their credit, House Republicans brought up that point very specifically right. about how much content they found encouraging kids to kill themselves.
2: Yeah. Right? And, well, and then the other side is the data privacy, which you've, you've also highlighted. But it was it was like a steel cage match with all these Republican members of Congress with like a folding chair.
5: <laughs> and, and they even had examples, uh, the House Republicans, of folks on TikTok giving specific threats against these members of Congress for having the hearings, which TikTok did nothing about, even after it had been flagged for them. Yeah, yeah, so well, it's very clear there's an agenda that TikTok has. It didn't and it's TikTok very anti-American. Didn't
0: TikTok just hire some big Democratic firm?
5: They did, and I think uh, someone pointed out that uh, one of the guys from that firm was sitting in the front row, right behind the CEO. Uh, he, I mean, I don't know how it's that a needed it's that a needed done outfit, well, right?
2: Well, yeah, but I mean, they don't need advice from even the Democrats because there was also a question where they asked, you know, were you briefed ahead of time of this hearing by anyone? In China at Bike Dance, oh boy, or the Communist Party. I didn't, and, the, I didn't hear that. Yeah, and answer? the answer was, well, you know, many people across oh, many, the country yeah. have sent me unsolicited advice, and yeah, they, I mean, wow, hilarious, hilarious. Is a, well, many people are saying, many people are saying. <laughs>
3: Did you see where they were trying to ask the guy his views on the genocide of Uyghur people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He just would not answer. This is, so I'll
5: I'll give the direct quote. This is from uh, Debbie Lesko, I believe, who had it. It said, do you agree that the Chinese government has persecuted the Uyghur population? And TikTok uh, CEO uh, Sho Chu says, I'm here to discuss TikTok and what we do as a platform.
0: Oh, Dude. I mean, here's, here's the reason why that matters, right, is because TikTok represents that it has actually no connection mm-hmm. with the CCP. That's what it says, right? Right. right. They say that they've, they've divested entirely. They're no longer associated with CCP. But that question, although irrelevant to the topic at hand, demonstrates that it is not at all disconnected. Totally. Because it's it's a question that when you are operating business within China, you cannot answer, as evidenced by the NBA, mm. right? Hundred percent. They can't do it. Anybody who has significant holdings, you can't answer that question because China sees it as a threshold issue. If you are doing by, if you are doing business in China and you answer that question in the affirmative, you are no longer doing business I mean, in China. The NBA uh,
5: well, well, specifically the, even has a factory and and uh, like a league development uh, uh, facility in Xinjiang. One of the cities that China has very specifically set aside for concentration camps for Uyghurs.
2: Right. I mean, you know, the CCP does not mess around with this. Stuff. At all. They want complete government control of all of the means of communication. You can't use Facebook in China. You can't use Twitter in China. You know, like some some people in China have to use like a virtual IP or some sort of way like well, to that's get around great, it. That's the
0: great irony right. is what you're, what you're saying right now is that. Somehow we are so we are so fucked as a culture. We're so fucked.
2: It's ba- it's back to the Pompeo thing on reciprocity, right? Yeah, totally, it, but, totally. But, but
0: like here in this country, we have had two years of whining and crying about content moderation of American companies with American voices with real American opinions, right? and what we can do to harm those American companies right, right? <laughs> whether or not we're going to we're going to throw them into yeah. you know all kinds I of mean, different I
5: mean like what's been happening with, with Elon Musk and Twitter where like you've had Democrats calling for him to like be dragged in front of a committee and right. face jail time yeah, for right. allowing free speech and they block Meanwhile, Twitter
0: in China
5: yeah. and like it, it, wake up and those <laughs> companies those same
0: companies can't do business in right. in, in China right. but the Chinese company come on in hey, come on you know what red carpet we're not even going Ask what you show us. My teenager loves it. Oh, they love it.
5: And then it's it's also important to point out point blank they asked the CEO if the Chinese government, Chinese Communist Party, had access to any of the data. And the guy says, Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, okay. Oh, thanks. (laughs) Terrific. Well, at least we're not going to get him on perjury, huh? (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> it's, I mean, thanks for the info. <laughs>
0: Holy smokes. Anyway, it's something to watch because I didn't see a lot of uh, pushback on the Democratic side. Seems to me like we're nearing bipartisan consensus here.
5: I hope we are. I really do because it's it's so insidious. It's had such a horrible effect, not just on the country, but specifically kids. Yeah. It, it just it's damaged them. The
0: one population you would expect your government to actually have an eye out for. Seriously. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, All right, so fellas, did you see that uh, Biden's approval, believe it or not, has managed to dip to a new low?
5: Oh, unsurprising. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no.
0: According to Yahoo, the approval of President Joe Biden has dipped slightly since a month ago, nearing the lowest point of his presidency as his administration tries to... Project a sense of stability while confronting a pair of bank failures, inflation that remains stubbornly high. Uh, I think that's sort of the problem, right? That's according to an Associated Press. Uh, NORC? What is that? Center for Public Affairs Research? I don't know what NORC is, but it's an AP poll anyway, folks. And so it's, you know, uh, it's totally. It's an incredible one.
5: It says right here, uh, the president' notch approval rating of 38%. He was at 45 in February, 41 in January. Uh, It says his ratings hit their absolute lowest point last July at 36%, you know, when we were... It was the gas crisis. Yeah, when everyone's facing all of that.
0: Which, by the way, by the way, uh, you know it'll be driving season soon. yeah. Yeah. And all of a sudden, all the media and the Democrats will express outrage at how it is that we've got gas prices going back up
3: again. <laughs> and then Joe Biden's approval rating will transition from the Associated Press to the Guinness Book of World Records.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I think I think what it shows is, you know, Joe Biden's approval is, um, you know, a mile wide and an inch deep with much the electorate. Yeah. In that, you know, he was basically elected as the steady hand caretaker president. And so anytime they sense you know broadly some instability in that bank runs you know the the failed afghan withdrawal the, yep. you know the inflation yeah, the floor drops mm-hmm. the floor drops right cuz they uh, they just don't want to hear anymore yep right and so i think i think that's what he's dealing with here mm. it's not that like some huge catastrophe has happened that you would think that Joe Biden would sink to this this level, it's I think it's that. It's the instability. that I mean, that's what they voted for.
0: Dude, you want to hear how oh, Yahoo characterizes all of this? Oh, I can't wait. Oh, it's so good. You guys are going to love it. The president has taken ambitious steps to boost the U.S. economy hmm. with his $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package in 2021, infrastructure investments, support for computer chip plants, and taxes on corporations and the wealthy to help health care and shift away from fossil fuels. But those efforts involve multi-year investments that have yet to provide much optimism. Um,
5: Is this like a a journalist writing this, or is is this the Biden campaign in waiting? Like, here's the press release, just copy-paste this.
2: It's that classic classic trope in in news media when it comes to democrats it's like the people just don't know how good they have it yeah yet. yeah it's gonna take a while it's yeah. gotta sink in just how great they have it well it's, like, don't it's you been very know? ambitious like,
5: this is the strongest economic recovery in history jack i know <laughs> that you're paying a ton for groceries and times are tough but you gotta understand joe biden's the victim here <laughs> Stop screwing him. Just say you approve of his job.
0: Smug, it's been a very ambitious agenda that gets I mean, our economy shameless. back on track.
5: It is shameless.
0: Well, so, but here here's one bullet that I think is worth concentrating on. Democrats under the age of 45 feel less positive about Biden, causing a drag on his approval ratings. Just 54% approve of the president's economic leadership compared to 72% of Democrats older than 45.
5: Wow, that is a
0: Similarly, switch. just 66% of Democrats under 45 approve of, of Biden overall compared to 85% of older mm. Democrats. So, you know, you, you, like yesterday we were talking about primarily Nikki's message about generational change. Mm-hmm. Again, one of the reasons why I'm fixated on this is because it just works everywhere. Yeah, It just works everywhere. Conservatives see it as an inherent critique of Biden. Liberals look at it and they're like, my God, how, how long are we going to have an 80 year old run this country.
5: Yeah. I mean, ironically, it's a lot of the Bernie supporters who keep saying that, like, why do we have boomers ruling over us? (sighs) Yeah. Instead of just paying for our college
4: debt.
5: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you can see it's sort of a sympathetic case. Anyway, I just keep
0: an eye on that because I think that's a really important thing. I'd be really surprised if there weren't more people that start adopting that message as we go along. Um, All right. We love to take scalps on the program. Love it.
5: We going to take another scalp?
0: I feel like we need to take another scalp. Yes. Take a scalp. It's been a while since we've surfaced one that we need to take, but we always do when we need to. And I think we need to here. Our our lust for scalps is unquenchable.
5: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we just got Gigi Soan. Yeah, F- F- FCC. So it's been a week or two. Might as well grab. Another it's been one. a couple
0: weeks. We got to get it back in the game, <laughs> fellas. I mean, it's been you know, Count Chocula was my favorite. I
3: still, think. yeah, still right.
0: That was it, uh,
3: that was great. Hard to beat.
0: We got another one here. Uh, Biden's got a controversial nominee for the Secretary of Labor. Uh, this is according to the Washington Examiner. When United States Labor Secretary Marty Walsh exits the Biden administration for greener pastures at the NHL Players Association. Mm. Deputy Secretary of Labor Julie Sue appears likely to be named the agency's next leader. Were Sue to take the helm of the U.S. Department of Labor, she would become yet another failed bureaucrat uh, from California rewarded with higher office in Washington.
5: That's like, it's there really is a factory for, like, failure Dems who come from California and get a big job in D.C. Like, Kamala is a perfect example it's of It's hilarious. Gavin Newsom's shooting for the same model. Yeah. It's shocking! Yeah, like,
3: like, the rest of the country wants to look more like California, and this particular job is very interesting. You know, we've got a lot of great sources here at the Variety Program. Oh, yeah. And one of them Tapping re- into them? Yeah, one of them reached out and said, made, basically made the point that with Marty Walsh, he wasn't somebody you always agreed with, but he was a union boss. Everybody knew he was a union boss. He had experience at the bargaining table. He was able to close negotiations. This woman, who they're proposing to replace him with, oversaw a $31 billion fraud (laughs) in unemployment at California. So, not only is she from California, she's part of the problem in California.
0: <laughs> they paid as much as $31 billion in fraudulent unemployment claims on I their am watch. shocked. Billion? Guys, billion? Guys, this is California. They dot their I's, they cross their T's <laughs> out there. I am shocked. <laughs> Do you
3: wait, hold on. Billion? 31 billion. That is That's outrageous. Insane. That's insane. That's in, a lot and of just money.
5: Unemployment payments? Fraud? And, and, and so, here's the thing is imagine that happens on your watch. And you're like, oh, shit. Am I going to get indicted? And they're like, promotion. I think we got a job in D.C. (laughs) for you. Ma'am, you have
0: all the right stripes. (laughs) Uh, You have checked every box. It is time for a promotion. Uh, So you know you're going to eat shit as a Democrat when even the L.A. Times editorial board calls her an epic failure. I mean, Jesus.
5: You can be like Karl Marx and and, and, and the L.A. Times will be like, well, you know, uh, they (laughs) try this is a bridge too far for the LA Times. Hart was in the right place. <laughs> Not here. <laughs> Epic failure.
0: Uh, district attorneys in California warned in 2020 that California may have sent over a billion dollars in UI payments to people outside the state and in other countries. Good God. More than 400 million went to prisoners. Prisoners.
3: Imagine that.
5: Unemployment benefit. Yeah, it's pretty tough to keep yeah. part of the <laughs> payroll. Couldn't find anyone to interview me. They won't let me out of solitary. Hey man, I'm hammering on these
0: license plates. <laughs> what do you want from me?
3: Julie Julie, you look like a straight shooter with upper management potential written all over you. We'd like to give you the job Secretary of Labor. <laughs> I, got,
2: I was giving out two brownies in the chow line. I got fired from the kitchen
0: in prison, and now I, I gotta claim unemployment. <laughs> the old chain gang doesn't count any longer, huh? I guess not. While leading California's Labor and Workforce Development Agency, she aggressively supported and enforced California's worker classification law, known colloquially as AB5. You remember this? We talked yeah, about this on the horrible. program. Terrible. Devastating to the gig economy, right? Just devastating. AB5 implemented the ABC test for worker classification, a three part test that reclassified employees as employees instead of independent contractors. And what that means to all of you is that anything that you have on your phone, any app, when you order something, whether it's DoorDash or an Uber or what have you, it's filled by people who are independent contractors who pick up your food or pick you up or whatever and have that independent contracting relationship with the, the, the app. Mm-hmm. What they did was say that every one of those people has to be employees and thereby subject to an incredible amount of regulations, taxes and all kinds of things to the state of California, which made that impossible, almost wiping out the industry altogether. Yeah. yeah. Right? And this is what they wanted to do, by the way, nationwide. I mean you remember the uh, God, what the hell was the name of that thing that they they surfaced last year and they wanted to pass on that in the Democratic House? Oh, I forget the uh, name. The Pro Act. Yeah, Pro Act. Nice. That's it. Nice. nice recall, Duncan. Jeez, you can't slip anything past mm-hmm. the old man. I'm a computer. Yeah. The PRO Act, but that's basically what it was, and they were all lined up behind that. Oh, side. yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. That was basically the federal version of this bullshit.
0: It was. But anyway, that's what they've got going on here, and, and she is just on... Un- There's one more thing here. She advocated for policies uh, behind the California FAST Act, uh, which would use unelected bureaucrats to set wage and labor policies for the fast food service industry.
5: And, and we talked about this is like, you know... Specifically during a time, I know a lot of folks uh, have mentioned that you know they go to a fast food restaurant. Uh, I was talking to this guy and he was like, you know, I went to uh, Burger King. I got a Whopper, I got fries and a drink. Fourteen dollars. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so already inflation is hitting them. And then this FAST Act was like, okay, well, what if we got union bosses yeah. to decide how much everyone gets paid?
0: Well, they thing? said they, they, they did an independent study and they said it was a 22% increase according to the University of California Riverside School of Business. This is not some like right-wing outfit. Yeah, yeah
5: <laughs> right? no. so your sure, $14 meal is going closer to 20
0: Like just imagine being like a franchise
2: owner in California and like you somehow managed to sur- survive covid And, like, you get back on your feet and you're dealing with all of this bullshit. Like, I, these people,
3: they just hate. They hate people. Hate people who are successful in this country. But you wrap all of this together and you understand why some Democrats in Congress are a little bit cold on her. A little bit less interested in her than they were in Marty Walsh. Joe Manchin... Has said he's looking for another Marty Walsh when somebody asked if he supports her. So, oh, interesting. So there's a little bit of trouble in paradise uh, among Democrats. Well, so this, this means nomination. if
0: the minions turn up the heat a little bit on this gal, could make a difference. She could. She
2: could. I mean, the same way they did over. to
5: Gigi Stone, I remember just seeing online just demolishing. Her. Well, G- and, and again, they took
0: Count Chocula out right,
5: yeah, just right, straight at up. The,
2: again, her name is Julie Sue. Yeah, for the minions. Yeah. Maybe talk to your United States Senator. Maybe have
0: a look at that, huh?
2: Say, you know what? I'm going to need you to go ahead and, and, and take a scalp
0: here. I'm not in love with $31 billion in fraudulent payments to people all over, including prisons. I mean, that. so that <laughs> Other I mean, country, like, Other
5: countries. $31 <laughs> billion dollars wasted on your watch, and you're not like, oh, shit, I'm going to jail? You're like, I'm going to get a promotion. I'm going to become <laughs> Secretary of Labor. It just- Mind-boggling.
0: How about fixing the address to that envelope? Oh, jeez, this one's going to Thailand. I can't believe
5: it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I guess I'll put a stamp on it. <laughs> Maybe hey, are, two stamps. Are, let's give that one two to three stamps. <laughs> I'm not sure it's good.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, our favorite topic, one of our favorite, definitely Smug's favorite topic, Southwest Airlines is back in the news, Smug. Oh,
5: I'm unsurprised. What's the chaos this According
0: time? to CNN, an off-duty pilot on Southwest uh, uh, flew the plane during an in-flight one. medical emergency. An off-duty uh, pilot who was a passenger on the Southwest this Airlines. Is insane. Uh, stepped in to help the flight crew after one of the on-duty pilots had a medical emergency. Uh, the incident began not long after the flight 6013 to Columbus, Ohio, took off from Las Vegas on Wednesday. And Southwest Airlines... <laughs> They said one of the pilots needed medical attention and uh, a credentialed pilot from another airline. From another
5: airline. Yeah. Well, wasn't even a Southwestern. who <laughs> was Sorry. on board,
0: entered the flight deck and assisted with radio communication while a Southwest pilot flew the aircraft. Uh, see, see, this is the problem with unassigned seating. You might end up in the fucking pilot's seat.
4: <laughs> <laughs> you know? Like,
5: <laughs> I mean, like, you get on a Southwest plane, you don't know where your seat is, you don't know who's going to fly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like you're drawing straws. Yeah. Who wants to fly? Who wants to sit? Here. You might
2: be sitting in the toilet. You might be sitting in the captain's chair. Dude,
5: it really is like
0: that old movie airplane.
2: Yeah. <laughs> when they went in the bag, yeah. they're like,
0: can anybody fly a plane?
5: Mike's like, I
2: got it. I guess I can. Yeah. You know, my, my favorite part of that movie is when they uh, they put on the autopilot.
0: It, and the blow-up it's it's doll. It's just the blow-up doll. <laughs> just sitting there. And then when she has to
5: manually blow it up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd get well, there. The, the best joke was he had a drinking problem. And he's like, I have a drinking problem. It's just he pours the glass all over him. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. If you haven't watched that movie, and I imagine there's a large number of our listeners who this is well before their time, it holds up. It does. It's hilarious. It holds up. Look, airplane with an exclamation point. Look at, find it, and watch it tonight. You will love it. And
5: it it is essentially just this Southwest It's just Southwest. Southwest has been for the past couple months where they're like, first off, didn't all their planes get grounded? (laughs) Right? And then they have... Every time you're going to see a brawl, like one of these airplane brawls, you know it's Southwest. It's the you Waffle it's House of the sky. It really is. <laughs> Except you don't, even, you don't even get a good meal. You don't even get peanuts anymore. You get nothing. You, I mean, like, to be, to be, to be on Southwest at 30,000 feet, and they're like an announcement. Hey, do we have a pilot on board? Oh shit! Well, I was—I would hope that's like the baseline, guys. But I you can... don't even—you're not even sure you're getting one of those after the plane's taken off on Southwest.
0: <laughs> well, apparently the guy was credentialed enough where he made it back uh, and he set her down. So that's good news. <laughs> that's good news. It'd be nice if Southwest started doing that just to help out other airlines. <laughs> just make sure that there's another pilot on on board just in case one of your guys goes down. Holy smokes. All right. Uh, fellas, I think we just wrapped a great week, but we have a big interview.
2: Yeah, we got uh, Senator James Lankford. Let's get right to it. I want to welcome to the program a great guy, Senator James Lankford. Thank you for joining us. You bet. Glad i be able to do it. So, man, I saw this clip on, on Twitter uh, last week uh, of you in the Senate Finance Committee, uh, which... Kudos to you. That's a great committee spot, you know, to be at. You know, you guys oversee like 50% of the entire budget of the United States. Um clearly
1: we're doing a good job. Clearly.
2: <laughs> um but you know, the uh the witness uh was Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Um, and you know, with this whole SBV uh debacle and um the fdic issues with you know big banks like signature bank um i think you you highlighted a a huge sort of flaw in this in this logic that the administration and and, and yellen are are using um i am not nearly as smart on this stuff as you are so sir i give you the floor
1: <laughs> no i i don't know if you're not as smart as me i was asking a pretty obvious question if they're going to bail out big banks. Uh, Because they have relationships with Federal Reserve and the FDIC, and they've got lots of lobbyists and lots of contacts with these big banks. Are they going to do the same for community banks? Uh, The basics that most everybody knows by now is you have $250,000 worth of insurance per account per person uh, that's there. So if you're a married couple, you've got half a million dollars worth of FDIC insurance for your uh, account that's sitting there. But if you've got $3 million in the bank, then obviously a bunch of that is not insured from FDIC. What she did, Janet Yellen did with the FDIC leadership when they panicked over the weekend on um, Silicon Valley Bank was say, we're going to insure every account for everybody for these big banks. But then she made it pretty clear to me, we're not going to do that for smaller banks. Well, the obvious thing is if I've got money, if I've got $3 million, which I don't, but if I've got $3 million in a smaller bank, I need to move it to a big bank because it'll be fully insured. Uh, so what what they're causing by this whole thing is they're causing the spiral on community banking when community banks are really important in our economy. And by the way, they're stable. They're the ones that are strong across the country. That's where the local grocery store in a rural town takes their money after hours and deposits it and has all that exchange in the convenience store and the gas station and the church and all those folks. They're really important to those local communities but if they find out, well, I'm not going to be insured if I have above two hundred fifty thousand dollars. I just can't do business in that community bank, and it crushes the community bank. Right. So that you was my could, you first basically question.
2: You'd, you'd create a liquidity crisis. You'd have like a bank a bank run on stable financial institutions, community banks, just because of the policy of the administration right. of favoriting these huge banks. So if you're, I mean, if you're a person with a lot of money in these community banks, you're like, well. I guess I've got to take my money to JP Morgan or Bank
4: of America, right? Which, I mean,
1: Which is absolutely terrible for them. It's terrible for them for customer service. J- J- JP Morgan is not going to set up a bank in Idaho, Oklahoma. They're just yeah. not going to do it, okay? So it's going to be a local community bank. But if the, the big deposits all have to move and feel an obligation to move just to protect their assets because the administration prefers big banks and they're going to bail them out and not going to do something for community banks, that's a huge problem on it uh, across the country. And her answer to me was basically, hey, we're only going to do this if we consider them systemically important. And we as this elite group will, will determine who's systemically important and who's who's not on it. That's a problem. And so I was pushing back on that policy on it. And then to also, as, as painful as it was, then to be able to ask, hey, if there's Chinese investors at Silicon Valley, which there were billions of dollars in Chinese investors there, are they going to be made whole by a special assessment? On our community banks in small town Oklahoma, uh, are they going to have to pay an extra amount to cover Chinese investors? And her answer was, "Yes, yes, they are. We're going to make them whole, and we're going to do that through a special assessment on smaller banks." That's just that's just not right. And there's not a person in Oklahoma that's going to pay higher fees for their banking that's going to be happy about bailing out Chinese investors. Yeah, it's absurd.
2: It's absurd. And also, I felt like in, in your in your series of questions. You're trying to drill down on, on, okay, specifically, you know, what are the criteria that you apply to d- designate somebody as having a risk, a systemic risk that would mean that we're going to insure deposits above this FDIC 250,000? You know, and she kind of went through a process uh, argument of like, well, they, they, you know, if the majority of the board votes and but there was no real, you know, you know, quantitative assessment of what exactly that looks like. it It seems like it's just a thing that happens in a closed room and we're just supposed to accept it.
1: <laughs> yep, that's exactly what it was. And my my question was specifically on Signature Bank, which is you know more than half the size of Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, they stepped in and took over Signature Bank and said, okay, we're, we're we're taking over here as well and shutting this down. And I look at it and go, okay, why why was Signature Bank uh, systemically important to the whole country, this New York bank? Um, uh, and they, she just couldn't give me an answer other than it was at the same time as SVB. And so we just had to do it. I just think they panicked and responded. Typically in a bank like that, if there's something going sideways on it, they will close it down for a moment. They'll put it out on an auction. Another bank will buy them. They'll buy all the assets in the account and they'll reopen it. And if there's a loss, it's a minimal loss to those account holders, but it's not a nationwide bailout like they created. Right. Right.
2: So, you know, as a Senator, you know, talking to your colleagues, sort of absorbing the aftermath of all this stuff with S B V and these other banks and whatnot, and the administration's policy now. Is there any anything like sort of any talk or any movement on on Capitol Hill to to clarify this or do something about it? I mean, you know,
1: where where's everybody's heads at on on this? Yeah, first things first, I, the, the last thing Congress needs to do is jump in and pass a piece of legislation this week and say we're going to somehow fix it, pass something to say we did something. We, we've got to ask all the hard questions first. You know, the the board for uh, Silicon Valley Bank, where were they? How, how were they not tracking this? Uh, they grew three times in size in five years. They had 96% of their folks were above the FDIC insurance uh, level. There's lots of, of warning lights out here. How did they miss it? How did the auditors, how did they miss it coming in from the FDIC? Something that's that that clear. So all of those things, there's basic regulatory issues we've got to be able to go through first before we try to pass something. And I, and I know there are folks that are on the Hill here. They're like, we need to immediately pass something, get it done as quickly as we can and, and move on to other things. But let's do something crazy. Let's actually ask for the facts and let's get details before we try to knee jerk, jump into something. If there's a need for a change, then we should engage long-term and we've got to be able to look at what are we going to do to stabilize community banking. Now, if the administration is going to have this weird policy of big banks over community banks, or when we feel like it's important, we're going to throw money. And when we don't feel like it's not, we're not, uh, that's going to be an issue that we're going to have to figure out a legislative solution long-term, uh, so that we're actually setting policy here and the future administration doesn't panic again. Yeah. Well said, rather do it slow and do it right.
2: <laughs> um, so know, let's, do, let, let's do something
1: really unusual in Congress. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, so pivoting to to another issue, um, you know that we've we've talked about is this issue of asylum and in the reform that is going
1: on. Yeah. You, could you explain that a little bit more to our listeners? Oh, yeah. So th- th- this has been this ongoing for a while. And it's been interesting to be able to track on what's happening at the border. We've had more than two and a half million people for the last two years illegally cross our southern border. I think a lot of people have heard that number. They've seen the stories. They're tracking them like, is anything going to happen? People don't know right now that the Biden administration started building border fence in Arizona We have border fence being built right now. What they said they weren't going to do, right. it's terrible they're building border fence right now because the Biden administration is finally figuring out, you know, this is really a problem and it's not just a political problem. It's a real problem that's out there. And so they're building border fence. Number one, number two, they put out a proposal to change how asylum is done. Now asylum, just like refugee, you can't just, if you're a refugee, pick anywhere you want to go in the world, you go through a refugee process and vetting for asylum. It's the same legal standards as that. And in most parts of the world, uh, you can't just show up at so, at some country's door and say, I want to be able to claim asylum. You sh- you're supposed to claim asylum in the next safe country to go to. So, for instance, in Canada, if you show up in Canada and you came through the United States and you want to ask for asylum, Canada would say no go. And the Mounties will take you out of Canada and say, you, you can't actually be here. Uh, Because you should have requested asylum in the United States, not just show up in Canada and do that. A lot of Europe already does that. The administration, to my shock and and gratitude, they have put out a new proposal to say we want to look again at asylum and do this more consistently with what the rest of the world is doing. So they've got that what they call a notice of proposed rulemaking out right now uh, asking the question if we do it like this. What are your questions and challenges on it? So we've been working a lot with the administration to say that's actually the right thing to be able to do long term. And we're going to try to work with them to try to do something that's actually right at the border. So in a shocking moment, we'll see what goes sideways on this. But we've actually got something I would look at and I'd go, I, I I could get on board with that because that's a better way to be able to deal with asylum.
2: So the idea there is if somebody's coming from Central America rather than tracking up, you know, going all the way up Mexico and into the United States that they would seek asylum in another country, either in Central America or in Mexico itself?
1: Yep, it would be, actually. If they're coming through Mexico, they got to do an asylum request in Mexico before they come here. If they didn't, uh, they got to go back and touch base there uh, to be able to do it. Let, let me give you an example. Last time I was in Yuma, Arizona, uh, was in January. And in Yuma, Arizona, at that particular week that I was there, they have, they have the tracking of where all the different countries that are coming across. There were more people that had illegally crossed in Yuma that week, from uzbekistan than there were from el salvador wow people are literally coming from all over the world i mean that's like five or six flights for them to be able to get here from uzbekistan but they didn't request asylum in any of those places they were really just wanting to come to america because quite frankly we're a great country i don't blame them uh, to be able to be here but this wasn't about just fleeing to the next safe place this was about hey i want to go live in america because i can get a great job and there's some great people that are there I don't want to be there. Well, we have a legal process. If you want to do that, that's not asylum. That's a legal request to be able to come into the country. So that would, that would immediately stop that. Well, yeah, because like asylum is,
2: is, you know, it's there for people who are fleeing immediate right. violence to themselves, not somebody who like has to call a travel agent, and book five flights and that's go, to correct. Form. you know what I mean? I mean, like that's just sort of an abuse of the process basically.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's a radical change on this, and it, but quite frankly, it's the right thing to be able to do. It's something we've uh, quite frankly encouraged for years, because when you look at asylum and what it's supposed to be and how it's being abused right now, if you come in and request asylum, the vast majority of those folks that are crossing the border, they're in the what's the, called the non-detained docket. And those individuals, their hearing for their asylum request will be a decade in the future. So they cross the border, claim asylum. They said, we don't have enough room to be able to hold you right now. We'll release you. Turn yourself in a decade from now. In the meantime, we're going to give you a work permit. All that does is encourage more people to come do it. And they're just accelerating the process. Until they change the policy, they're going to continue to get the same result. I mean,
2: how can you justify a process where an asylum seeker has a
1: hearing in a decade? A decade. And by the way, that's their first hearing. Uh, they'll they'll have another hearing after that. They've got to get through the initial screening and then and they're going to actually have to get to a court. Some estimates in some places, you could be 14 to 18 years before that's done. So yeah, the, the, the system is completely broken in every single way, just because we've had so many people coming at it for the last couple of years, it just shut the whole system down. Wow. Which, that's Which by the way, grim. means legitimate asylum seekers. They're not getting a hearing either. Yeah, right. Right, because they've sort of
2: just, Overwhelm the process with all these people who are seeking asylum from faraway places. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes, that makes perfect sense. I mean, what a, what a nightmare of a situation. Uh, so, but you feel, you feel good about, uh, this, this proposed rulemaking.
1: You think the administration's willing to, to work on it? So they've stuck their neck out and said, Hey, this is a better way to be able to do this. Let's actually treat asylum like asylum is supposed to be done. We'll see what, where the proposal goes from. Here's our idea. Lots of folks on the left are just smashing on the administration saying this is a terrible thing. You're talking about closing the borders and uh, you're going to be unfair to people from all over the world that need help. The fact is there are people all over the world that need help, but not necessarily take five flights to be able to get here. Uh, These are individuals that need to flee to the next possible spot and to be able to get started there. So the focus now is... We've seen the initial proposal. They got to actually carry through and to be able to finish it out. So we spent a lot of time trying to be able to walk through that process, meet with asylum officers, figure out where this could go in the days ahead. Yeah. Well, you know, I hate to be cynical, but,
2: you know, there is a presidential election coming up and Joe Biden doesn't, doesn't want to look like he's not doing anything about the border crisis. You know, I saw the funniest thing the other day. It was a tweet from either his account or the White House of him and with border fence behind him. You know, and it's just it. It's they've sort of had a realignment over there uh, in the White House on
1: on how they view a lot of these issues. I think here recently, (laughs) it's amazing what an election will do to actually make people attentive to the American people. (laughs) Amen, amen. Uh,
2: So, Senator, we have three questions we ask all of our guests here on on
1: Ruthless. Uh, So you're you're saying you just treat me the same as anybody else?
4: No, no difference.
2: (laughs) Well, the answers will make you different and show some personality. Uh, the first question is, you know, if you could plan your last meal and, um, you know, anything you could, you could eat in the
1: whole, whole world, uh, what would it be? Well, let me just go ahead and say only people on death row get to plan their last meal. So there's a lot behind that one. So I'm number one, hope I never end up on death row to be able to do that. Uh, because pretty much God plans your last meal. Otherwise. Uh, but it's definitely going to be a steak. Uh, It's going to be ice cream. Um, It's going to have fruit on top of the ice cream because I'm one of those people. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, Uh, that would suffice me for last meal. By the way, that also would presuppose that I still have good teeth, I guess, on my last meal (laughs) as well. Are we doing any sides with that steak or is it just the ice cream? Well, ice cream definitely counts as the side. It's a dairy product yeah, um, yeah, and it has fruit on it. So that counts as something healthy. And if it's yeah, dry, you're getting the I whole meal, food pyramid. I, I got broccoli with it. <laughs> broccoli. <laughs> All right. And, and what are we thinking for the steak? Are we thinking like a filet, a porterhouse, ribeye? So it's definitely going to be a ribeye and it's going to be medium. Uh, right. If it's rare, even if it's my last meal, I'm going to send it back to get, you know, some of the blood out of it. Okay. Okay worried about the foodborne
2: pathogens, even in his last meal,
1: even in your last meal, I don't want to get (laughs) some sort of eco life. That's right.
2: (laughs) All right. So second question here is, you know, blue sky. Um, if you didn't get involved in, in, in politics, you could, you know,
1: pick any, any career, what, what you'd want to do, what would you do with your life? I would, I would be right back where I was before I was a youth pastor for 22 years before I was in Congress, which terrifies some people that a youth pastor is in Congress at this point. Uh, but yeah, I would go right back to working with students. I love working with students and families. No, no doubt that that's what I'd plan to do my whole life. And this was a total interruption for me.
2: All right. All right. Well, that's a good answer. Good answer. Um, final question. Um, and this one's a little complicated. You know, it's our belief here on the show that, you know, all successful people are motivated by two things, uh, either the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat. Um, and they use one of those two things to motivate them to be successful in life. Thrill of victory. People are your optimist class half full, uh, a victory really motivates them to go out and succeed more, uh, agony of defeat people, um, you know, are like Michael Jordan, um, you know, success for them lasts a minute, but any slight, any failure, any mistake is something they carry with them forever. And they use that as a motivation Uh, to never lose again, and that helps them succeed. So on that spectrum between thrill of victory or agony of defeat,
1: where do you find yourself? Well, I would be a mixture because I'm an optimist, but I'm definitely driven by agony of defeat. I hate to lose. If i make a mistake on something, I, I, I sit and dwell on it for a long time, try to figure out how to do it again. I have a statement my family knows well, I hate being a rookie at anything because rookies make rookie mistakes, and I hate making rookie mistakes. So when you do something the first time, You make a mistake, can't do anything about it, but I do not like to lose.
2: Nice. That's a good answer. Good answer. Senator Langford, I really appreciate you joining us. Uh, Thank you so much. For our listeners, where can they
1: find you uh, online? Langford.senate.gov. Langford.senate.gov. That's got uh, email addresses, phone numbers, even a snail mail. If people still have a stamp, the post office would be super excited if you used it. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, all the the information's there. You can go online at at Senator Langford at any of the social media platforms. Just don't believe all of the comments you read on the social media platforms. I'm really not a six-armed monster. I'm really not. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks a lot, Senator. You bet. Good to visit with
2: you.
0: What a smart guy. I just love that guy.
2: He's a great guy. Um, Really interesting uh, thing that he talked about was you know i mean joe biden might be running for reelection here and so he's trying to figure out ways to get some wins under his belt this 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 asylum issue i think is very very interesting it's it's fascinating to see how the biden administration is trying to tack to the center on that and then all the stuff on 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 the banks is is incredible i'm glad he's there i'm glad he's asking the questions you know senate finance is no joke that's a major major committee Mm -hmm. so it's good you know i think um you know we also we we often talk about on the show sort of show horses and work yeah, horses yep and and Senator langford is definitely one of those work horses totally you know his profile is definitely a lot lower than some of the people that you know listeners on this show might know but just know you know there's a lot of people out there doing the hard work that don't get a lot of attention or appreciation people like him
0: yeah and that and that is the one thing that in the the cable news era which you know thankfully there's other outlets like ruthless now, here where we, we can do this kind of thing but i do think in the cable news era in particular you get a lot of people who are like oh he'll come on and cr- say crazy things and everybody's like well he must be the most important person because he's on every night and then you look at guys like that
2: yeah a guy who can disassemble yeah a treasury secretary in two
0: minutes <laughs> right and it's like oh i'm pretty glad we got those guys too right <laughs> 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 pretty glad we got those guys too Fellas, I think we did
5: it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Senator Langford, for being on. Thank you so much to the listeners. Reminder, Hack Madness is still going down. Voting should be happening on Friday when you're hearing this. Go to my profile on Twitter, cast your vote, or hackmadness.org. So until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Tuesday. Stay ruthless.